Earlier in the year, I reached out to colleagues at the National Paralympic Heritage Trust. We just started this podcast and I was looking to somehow bring the Parasport collections to life a little bit, especially with Tokyo scheduled uh, for the summer. So I got to thinking whilst I was surrounded by lots of Paralympic ephemera and leaflets, if I could actually just talk to a former competitor, I'd really want to listen to them talk about what it's like to be part of an opening ceremony. The MPHD has granted my wish and put me in touch with you, Robert. You have featured in the opening ceremonies and the Games, the Paralympic Games. You've competed in Seoul in 1988, Mm. Barcelona in 1992, and then you were uh, a performer in London 2012. I think that counts as uh, having participated in opening ceremonies. So shall we start by talking a little bit about your journey to Seoul? How did you become a Team GB athlete? I wanted to get more active when I first became an amputee. So it was a kind of slow process starting to learn to run again. And what happened was that virtually every leg that the, the, the prosthetist gave me, I, I snapped it um, from trying to do too many, too many sports like long jump and trying to run. Uh, I was very lucky because at the time, the Americans had just come up with the, the design for the flex foot and it had been out in America and uh, passed all the trials in the States. They wanted to trial it here in the UK. My prosthetist had heard about this and thought I would be a, a good person to try it on. Once I got it, I mean, I, I never looked back. It was it was a, a joy uh, to run on it. Fabulous. I'd never had experienced anything like it. It did have its stress problems. I have snapped it at the ankle, which is where it tends to start delaminating. At the time, it was about 25 layers of carbon laid on top of each other, and it had various stress areas. One of them was at, right in the middle of the bend. And so I'd be hammering around a, a 400 meter track. The thing would just snap and you'd go straight in your face. What it did do was enabled me to work really hard as an athlete and then go to the county trials in Kent from there to the nationals. That started the whole ball rolling as part of my my being part of GP. But the test of metal, they sent me to Canada for the Canadian trials when they were trialing their able-bodied athletes for 1988. It was an international Bologna amputee, uh, 100 meters from athletes as far as Australia. I, I came second in that. That set the boundaries then for my being an established member of the team because I'd proven my worth in Canada and proved that I, I could I could actually win a medal. So they decided to take me part of the British team going out. So Can I go back to something you said when you were running your flexi foot blowing out and you're hitting the ground. It must <laughs> be really important that you trust your equipment, your kit. Yes, it's very important. Thankfully during both the Olympic games and, and every Olympic games, there is a fitter a team fitter, if you like, who goes with you. And it's up to him to make sure that everything is perfect with the legs that you're using. You could be running on the edge of, of the outside of the, of the foot or running on the inside. It could be just just a slight slight alteration that makes all the difference that you're coming down square on the foot every single time, whether it's in a bend or in the straight. Uh, so they're very, very important. And I remember, I remember in Seoul, 
because the fitting now is completely different to the way it used to be. It used to be a, almost like a stocking belt, a belt that went around your waist, then it went down to, to the leg. And there was a couple of bolts either the side of the leg and that came up into a, another tapered edge, which you attached through the waist belt. And I remember in, in Seoul, we were training, the bolts broke uh, when I was, it always happens, it always usually happens when you're, you know, full pelt. So the bolts broke full pelt, I had a nice big scar, scar from, a uh, scar burn from the track. We had to go locally to find someone who could fix it. Luckily, uh, we did find someone in the village just outside of the, you know, the training facilities who could do it perfectly. Very lucky there. In Korea, they have this thing called soju, which is basically moonshine, legalized moonshine. Whenever locals would see my face, they would say soju. And I would say, no, no, I haven't been drinking moonshine. <laughs> it's an accident. <laughs> it's one of those risks of the sport that just isn't visible. One of those things that you know as an athlete. The process you describe going through local county trials, then nationals and going off to Canada to compete and show show your your quality, your ability. Mm. That sounds like uh, a sport that is definitely professionalising in the 80s. Did it feel <clears> like that at the time? No, it didn't, not at all, really. It was trying to find a, a turning point. But in 88, it was still kind of, they were still doing pats on the head. And isn't he doing well for an amputee or isn't he doing well in his wheelchair? You'd get comments like, what's your time for the with 100? And you'd tell able-bodied people your time for the 100. And they would say, I've got two legs and I couldn't run that fast. Mm -hmm. Well, I know you couldn't because you haven't trained for five years as a professional athlete. Even if you look back at the commentary and, and everything that happened in Seoul, you can see the difference between Seoul in 88, Barcelona in 92, mm -hmm. where it became a real, real turning point. There was very little coverage in, in Seoul in 88. Uh, they just maybe showed a few clips of the opening or closing ceremony. But in Barcelona, there was a, a great deal more coverage from Channel 4 especially. And that's what started kicking off professionally all the reporting on the Paralympics because people couldn't get enough of it. It was great. Seoul itself had been a big leap forward because it was the first Paralympics that I'd recognise because today mm. elements of Paralympics it happens in the same city as the Summer Olympics or Winter Olympics. It's shared facilities, it happens straight after the Olympics and it has its own opening ceremony, its own closing ceremony and they seem like a connected pair. And this hadn't really happened very much before Seoul in 1988. I think it had happened once or twice and then it had drifted from looking at the paper the papers we have here that... Seoul was the first time that the Olympics said, come on, Paralympics, stand next mm. to us. But there is that contradiction that you pick up on, that pat on the, pat on the head culture. I've got here, this is a, a newsletter that was released by the Paralympic Organising Committee in the run-up. This was just before, so this is August 1988. Mm -hmm. And they have here a quote. The quote from the organiser in Seoul is that it's it's about challenge and conquest, equality and friendship, festival of human triumph. It's that idea that you're overcoming something. It's not necessarily about the excellence that you embody in the same way that it's the excellence that the Olympians embody. It just seems to be slightly contradictory, but obviously it was a step in the right direction. But anyway, back to actually being there on the ground in Seoul. Mm -hmm. What was it like when you arrived? 
It was fantastic. We had never experienced anything like it because there had never been a, a Paralympics on this scale. You know, we had police escorts from the airport to the stadium and to the village. And then from the village, every time we went to the stadium, we had a police escort. I can remember the police, <laughs> police escort having to nearly arrest someone because the bus driver cut him up. He got out of his car and punched the bus driver. <laughs> uh, and the police just uh, told him to go away or they were going to arrest him. Um, so it was a great atmosphere in the village. It was absolutely fantastic. You couldn't have wished for better. You you made lots and lots of friends from, from all of the athletes, whether whether they were in your races or, or not. It was like a, a real community of athletes from around the world. Athletes you'd, you'd never seen before, whom you'd never heard of before, doing fantastic times over one, two, four hundred meters, etc. They were absolutely amazing. And you really felt like you were going to have to work dang hard to, to get anywhere near a medal. I was thinking, I'll, I'll be like, if I get through the heat, when I saw some of these guys running. Thankfully, that uh, that did happen. I got um, got through the, all the heats and uh, into the final. And that was just unbelievable. I was shaking like a leaf. But I I had a, a great start in the 100 and a great start in the 200. It was the same three athletes who got first, second and third. I luckily got two bronze. But if I look at some of the snapshots, I thought everybody was breathing down my neck the whole time. But if I look back at some of the snapshots that I have from the time, they were at least five or six metres behind me. Uh, the rest of the field. Pretty amazing. I just couldn't believe it. It was so exciting. And the stadium was full at the time that we we were competing, which made it even more exciting because the crowd was behind you and the British team were behind you. The only thing that was let us down a little bit, we were in the holding pens doing drug testing for so long. By the time we got back into the stadium, virtually for the medal ceremony, virtually everybody had gone. Oh, no. Um, yeah. Um, so that was a... That was a bit disappointing. But. Also, the medal ceremony is the best bit. So you have two of these. So we have in our collection a bronze medal, and it has a ribbon. It's got the five Paralympic teardrops, which they were told not to use afterwards because <laughs> it was too close to the uh, Olympic rings. The IOC weren't keen <clears> on. <throat> yeah. It's got the stadium embossed on one side. And then on the back... It's got something written in Braille. My Braille is not up to scratch, but it's got these wonderful characters, the mascots, the, the Gondori, which yeah. is uh, the two bears. And I'm very yeah. fond of the two bears. So I imagine, I mean, I'm holding this. I haven't earned it. It's it's in our collection. We don't, I don't think we actually know whose bronze medal this is, but it must be such a an achievement, a wonderful thing. Did you break any records as well? I broke a British and European records at the time. Uh, for both the 100 and the 200. And there's also another medal that all of us got, which was to commemorate a commemorative medallion, which is heavier than the actual medals themselves. Can you see me? Yes, yes, I can. Can you see that? Oh, gosh. So that is, it's the same sort of logo, but it's a temple and it's, is it hexagon, yeah. hexagonal? And then on the back is the stadium and above it the... Fantastic. Very cool. Very cool. Very cool indeed. So, so, so all, of, all of us got one of those as well. Did you feel like your first Paralympics? Did it change change you? Change you as yeah, an athlete? Yeah, it, it did change me. It made me more, 
I'm more committed. The only way to get more committed was for me to approach the CEO of my company, which at the time was Morgan Stanley. He loved sport of any kind. When I went back with two bronze medals to show them, they were over the moon about it. We had a trip coming up to New York. And so the CEO was going to be in New York, um, out on Long Island. So we went to the, the games in New York, the GB team went to the games in New York, just a small amount of us, not the whole GB squad, compete uh, against the Americans. Whilst we were there, he had given me an invite to come out to, to his house, give him a call and come out to his house for dinner one evening. So we went out to the house, which was a huge mansion out on Long Island. It was so big that the, the kids used to be able to cycle their bikes in the basement. That's how big it was. So we went out and my coach came with me. We asked if we could have a, a chat to him. And he said, yeah. The coach said, well, look, if we were to stand any chance of getting a, a medal in Barcelona, Rob needs to concentrate more on this as sport. Possible for him to have more time, time off to work on pentathlon, which is where I was progressing towards. We were looking forward to the, the European championships because that would test whether or not uh, you were going to be able to go to Barcelona, being with a, a, a real chance of getting a medal. He agreed completely. I could take the afternoons off and start training for pentathlon in the European Games. That was really kind of him. If it hadn't been for that, I wouldn't have done so well in the Europeans. and I would never have made Barcelona in 92. Give me my ignorance. What is pentathlon? What are the different disciplines in it? Originally, it was uh, it was high jump and long jump. 100, 400 meters discus. They thought it was too much of a disadvantage to the throwers. So they took away the high jump and replaced it with shot put. In the end, there was shot put discus, long jump, 100 and 400 meters sprints. So five disciplines, you had to be really good at all of them. I trained every every single day. I was very lucky and I joined a club at Crystal Palace make my way over there, you know, every afternoon to train. And sometimes uh, I would train in the evenings with the, the rest of the Crystal Palace guys, especially the sprinters who were absolutely astonishing. Everybody that I ever met in the able-bodied side was always really encouraging. Anything they could do to help, um, they did. You go through Europeans and you do really well. You're looking forward to Barcelona. Hmm. How, did you, how did you make the team for Barcelona? I came fourth in the European Championships, which, although they called it the European Championships, the Americans were there as well. It was like a, a testing ground for everybody who was going to be going to Barcelona. Unfortunately, I missed out on the bronze by a sixteenth of an inch in the long jump. Oh, that's um, nice. Yeah, it was a, a bit unlucky. It was a good enough performance for for me to get into the British team with the hope that I would improve enough to come back uh, from Barcelona with a, with a medal. I just kept on training and I would compete every weekend virtually with my local Sittingbourne club down in Kent in the able-bodied athletics. I would do anything related to my pentathlon I was quite happy to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, they would put me in the 100, put me in a 400, uh, shot, discus, you know, long jump, whatever they were short of an athlete to get into, they would put me in. Gosh, so you're <laughs> a good all-rounder. What was your favourite discipline do you think? I think my favorite discipline was a, was a long jump. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed training for the long jump. It was such a 
such a difficult thing to to actually get absolutely perfect every single time. That and the hundred meters were probably my my favourites. Forgive me, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. You're still working, not quite full time, but you're still working. Mm. Um, you are an amputee, so that has an impact on your 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 daily experience of life. Mm. And you're also training to be and maintain being uh, an elite Paralympian and an elite para sport athlete. Yeah. Surely, there's got to. Be, I mean, that's that's must must have been a full on life in the, the late eighties, early nineties. Where did the drive come from? Um, the drive uh, just came from the fact that I could get to another another Paralympic Games because of the amount of coverage and coverage that I was being given programs for the BBC the drive was I really want to get to Barcelona more than anything um, because it is going to be a game changer for everyone I knew that Channel 4 was going to be covering covering the, the Barcelona Paralympic Games to be a part of that was going to be something incredible we knew that the people of Barcelona were really uh, looking forward to the games and they're crazy about sport from the beginning to the end, every single day, the stadiums were absolutely jammed. The swimming events were jammed. The, the Paralympic Stadium was absolutely rammed with people. It was incredible. And I really wanted to be a part of that. So I worked really, really hard to, to make sure that I couldn't be ignored. And you made it. You made it to Barcelona. Yeah. So tell yeah. me a little bit about your experience in Barcelona. <clears throat> and Barcelona was crazy. Each event was, the crowd was behind every single person. Lots of the events that you couldn't hear yourself even speak because the, the noise from the crowd, you know, 80,000 people in the stadium was just amazing to be in front of that, that kind of crowd. Uh, something that none of us had ever experienced before. Even in Seoul, we didn't have those kind of numbers in the, in the stadiums and in the swimming pool. And everybody was talking about it. How fantastic it was and how much... Uh, joy that the uh, people of Barcelona were getting from the games. The village was absolutely fabulous, beautiful, just been built, the able-bodied athletes had just finished using it. So we had all the same same chefs, the same officials, the same rooms as the able-bodied uh, athletes had had. There were six of us in my apartment, mostly sprinters, four sprinters and two wheelies who were uh, field athletes. Uh, doing shot and discus. At Seoul, there was a parity in terms of access to facilities with the, the athletes village and the sporting venues that were used. But it feels like from what you're saying in Barcelona, there was suddenly a parity in terms of audience and media coverage. It was a, a massive improvement, a huge step up from before. Channel 4 took it to another level completely, something that we had never that had never happened before. When you were being interviewed by Channel 4, they would interview in the same way they would interview a normal able-bodied athlete who was at the Olympic Games. So we would get the same interviews as the Olympians were, were being given with the same respect. It was just a turning point for, for all of us. We had never experienced anything like that before. Yeah, and had the prosthetic technology kept moving as well, had that improved? Yeah, even, even the prosthetics had started to improve. They were being more specific about the design of the legs themselves and 
what they were being used for. The blade was being formed by Flexfoot at that time, but there were not too many people who had a blade or could afford one even. The difference uh, between the blades now and the blades we used then is probably about the same as a bag of sugar, something like that. One or two bags of sugar. This technology has moved on massively since then. I picked up a blade at one of the exhibitions that Blatchford's had, and it was as light as a feather. I could not believe it. And for you know something that light to have that much strength, Flexfoot have made an incredible leaps in technology over the years. Will they keep going? What, what's the, the improvement? Yeah, they will keep improving it. They will keep trying to make it better, lighter, faster. It isn't just the blade itself. It's the training for athletes now is completely changed. They train in exactly the same manner as able-bodied athletes. And you have to do that if you expect to go to a Paralympic Games and come back with a medal of any kind, then you are going to have to train as hard as long as your able-bodied counterparts. There's so much competition now and there's so many great athletes out there. When you were gearing up for Seoul, gearing up for Barcelona, was there support for you financially from the government and is there support today for, for Paralympians? There certainly was no, no support for me uh, during that time, but I was fortunate that I was still working for Morgan Stanley. They were still paying me my normal wage, despite mm-hmm. the fact that I was only working in the mornings and then going off to train in the afternoons. I was very fortunate in that sense that I didn't have to rely on government funding. But I think there is government funding now, Paralympic athletes, but it's going to be very, very little, I should think. You need to have some form of sponsorship from whomever you can get it from to get to the level that you need to, because you have to train on a permanent basis now. I'm not sure how much uh, support there is from the government for all disabled athletes. Certainly all all the disabled athletes I know have company sponsorships of one form or another, whether it's with Adidas or Nike or Puma or maybe a company or local government, local government funding from, for instance, the London Sports Council or somewhere like that. But you do need uh, to have that kind of funding to enable you to, to be a full-time athlete, which is what you need to be now if you have any hope of going to, for example, Tokyo this year. After Barcelona, you come home mm-hmm. and you've achieved something fantastic. But does it feel a bit flat? Yeah, it does. It does. Especially fabulous games like uh, that we had in Barcelona. Barcelona was a bit of a disappointment for me. The, the first event was going was the long jump. I had two no jumps. So on the third one, I had to get it. Otherwise, I was going to lose all the points gained from doing a clean jump. So I really, really went for it in the long jump. Overstretched myself, tore a hip flexor. Unfortunately, because of the system that's used in pentathlon and decathlon and things like that, uh, you cannot seek a medical attention because you're not allowed to leave the, the stadium and go and get something looked at. And no one's allowed to come near you. Even the coaches are not allowed to touch you, although you can go and talk to them whilst they're in the, uh, in the stands. So I had to wait until there was a break at midday for lunch and go and get it checked out. I had a good long jump. But when, we, when it came to doing the discus and shot, I had no power left in the hip flexor. So sadly, it wasn't to be in Barcelona for me. 
although we did stand a chance, we were gold medal favourites for the 4 by 100 The first two athletes screwed up the changeover, changed the baton out of lane. Although we were, we still managed to get second, we were disqualified, which was a real shame. Worst about it is I've got video footage of the whole thing. If I want to depress myself, I just watch the rerun. Oh, no. <laughs> I yeah. do use it in lectures, though, just to let everybody see what happens when you don't practice. <laughs> so fast forward mm-hmm. to 2012. Yeah. And you're flying through the air in the opening ceremony of mm-hmm. Paralympics. How yeah. did that happen? And what had life been like for you? <clears throat> Were you still competing as a an elite Paralympian after 1992? I decided that I was I was fast enough to go back to playing rugby to Barcelona. So I decided to to, to focus on rugby, and I, I ended up playing for the bank I was working for, the bank I did work for, and a club called Old Walkutians down in Surrey. So I'd be playing three games of rugby a week just for fun. Then I decided to take up snowboarding, which was something I'd always wanted to try and ended up going to the uh, World Championships just before the 2012 and competing there. So, uh, yeah, I, I maintained a level of sporting fitness all the way through to 2012. I was captain of the, the Great Britain uh, setting volleyball team because I'd and I, I created London Lynx setting volleyball team, all but maybe two or three of them. Uh, were part of the GB team in, in 2012, both female and male athletes. For me, that was a great achievement, being able to, you know, give give other athletes a head start, to give them the experience of being at 2012. It was fantastic. I had a call from a friend of mine who said they were looking for athletes, ex-Paralympians, to try out for for the opening ceremony. They wouldn't tell tell me what you, you we were going to be doing in the opening ceremony. In fact, nobody really knew what we were going to be doing in the opening ceremony. But I ended up going to the trial, getting through that. That meant that uh, we would have to spend three months in circus school, which was really absolutely fantastic because there was athletes from every discipline, whether they were deaf or blind or double amputees, single amputees, wheelies, all attending circus school as part of the opening ceremony. None of us knew what we were going to be doing. It was three months of hard work. I came away from that every day with bruises or burns, or if you didn't come away with a bruise or a burn and and aching all over, then you hadn't been trying hard enough that day. (laughs) But the instructors were fantastic. I made a whole new realm of friends who were wonderful. But it was really, really hard work. And then I found out that what I was going to be doing was going to be amongst ex-Paralympians. And they wanted me, because I was a sprinter, to uh, sprint across the stadium into the centre. And then you had Tani to my left and an ex-Paralympian dual guy to the right. It was fantastic seeing Tani again after all those years. I hadn't seen her for maybe 15 years. Uh, So it was lovely to see her. It was lovely to see the other athletes as well, who had spent time with in the 88 village in Seoul. It was a great reunion and it was a fantastic feeling being a part of that in the stadium. It was awesome. It felt to me as a, a spectator that the Paralympics in 2012 were a big breakthrough and a, a culture shift 
in the yeah. UK as to how power athletes are, are seen. Uh, did, did that come across to you at all? Yeah, certainly. Um, I was fortunate enough to get a pass to attend the games after the opening ceremony. I was fortunate enough to be uh, at the closing ceremony. The atmosphere in a stadium from people from around the world was incredible. The stadium was full. It was a completely different feeling. Everybody was, you know, trying to get um, autographs from the athletes and they were treated as professional athletes for the first time, I think, uh, that I've ever seen by not just the representation from companies like Channel 4, BBC, but also by people attending the games itself. It seemed like a big watershed and I just I yeah. really can't wait for, for Tokyo this year to see to see the Paralympics and see the reception for that. It's going to be a strange one, I think, with the pandemic. There might be empty mm. stadiums, but will you be watching? Of course, you? yeah. Looking forward to it. Really looking forward to it. You know, I've got um, a number of friends who are athletes who are going to be at the Tokyo Games. So I'll be watching especially those their competition in shot discus and I uh, wouldn't miss the 100 and uh, 400 metres, 200 metres. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be a record-breaking games. Yeah, I think often as spectators, people looking in, and this goes for all elite sport, I'm just seeing something, a snapshot in a moment, and you don't necessarily see the lineage back and actually the fact that uh, you competing in 1992, you might have been seen on TV by someone who was inspired to then get in touch with their local running clubs. And then that feeds on. And then you might be involved in coaching and lecturing and this all builds up. And so it's still your your impact is still rolling through the Paralympics today, I'm sure. I do as many as much as I can in terms of lecturing and, and talks. And especially in primary schools, who are always really fascinated by by the legs, it's building awareness of that, which is one of the reasons why, even though I could have covered my leg when I was sprinting for my able body club, I wanted to keep it stripped down deliberately uh, so that if someone saw me or someone knew someone with a disability who saw me, they could either get in touch or it would motivate them to become more interested in, in sport. And maybe they were thinking before that I've lost my, my leg. That's the end of things for me. I'm, I'm never going to be able to do any form of sport ever again. And it would drive them to start rethinking that. It would be the, you know, the nucleus for uh, uh, um, them to go and try uh, and find out, either come talk to me or just try and find out more from the prosthesis, um, uh, go talk to uh, an able body club, anything like that. It was very important that I was being seen as an athlete despite my disability. I was taking charge of my disability and not letting it take charge of, of me. I felt really positive about doing that kind of thing. I still do to this day. My blade, when I go jogging or anything, my blade is still stripped down, doesn't bother me. Children are still fascinated by it, especially here in Cornwall. There aren't that many amputees down here in Cornwall. Just recently, I was out in um, Wadebridge down here and I went into a local shop. The girl looked at my T-shirt and said, sorry, what, what's sitting volleyball? I've never heard of that before. She said, I play for the local club here as an able-bodied volleyball player. 
I don't think anybody's ever heard of that. No one's ever mentioned it to me, certainly. I explained what sitting volleyball was, what it entailed, told her about the National League, and she said, well, could you come and give us a, a demonstration and teach us how to play the game? It's moments like that that are still wonderful. You can you can raise interest in, in disability sport just by wearing a T-shirt and then being willing to give your time and to teach other people you know, how to play it. Now we're looking at the first ever uh, sitting volleyball club down here in Cornwall. Uh, we're trying to make that uh, a reality. But with COVID, it's been obviously, <laughs> it's been a struggle, but it, it will happen here. My last question now sounds very trite to me, so I'm going to ask it anyway, but I will follow up with something a bit more meaningful. In our collection of para sport documents and items, we have an awful lot of, well, we've got medals, but we have a lot of uh, souvenirs. The Paralympics and the Olympics do branded souvenirs really well. Do you have a favourite souvenir from your, your Paralympics? For me, uh, my, my favourite souvenir is, is my tracksuit. I thought it was a fantastic tracksuit at the time. I still do one of the, one of the great, uh, great designs of tracksuits that we, we had. I loved wearing it. It was it was great. Obviously, apart from that, is is the medals from Seoul. I absolutely adore them. For me, it was a life changing, a life changing games. Certainly, um, I wouldn't be in the position I'm in now, having all those wonderful memories if it, it hadn't been for those games initially. Thank you so much. Um, I do have one more question, but sure. I will probably end the podcast there. But this question is just for my own interest, really, because I'm an able-bodied person and I'm, I'm just trying to square two things in my head and talking to you has really put them into conflict. So for us here, the Paralympics, the, the story starts in 1948 with Gutman and the Stoke Mandeville Games and it being therapeutic, the idea that sport is therapeutic for people recovering from injuries, particularly after World War II. Mm. Um, but talking to you, I don't feel like it's therapeutic. I feel like you've just seen yourself as a professional athlete. And that's that's it. And that, that therapeutic side is not necessarily relevant to pa uh, para sports people today. What would you say? Um, I'd say it was it mentally uh, therapeutic. It gives you confidence. One of the things that gave me the most confidence, being able to compete in an able-bodied race and being able to uh, compete very well, like coming in second or third sometimes in able-bodied races over 200 metres, for example. So it, it gave me the confidence to be able to compete against able-bodied athletes and even more confidence to go on to be a professional athlete. So get a huge buzz from that. It builds your confidence. It builds your moral fiber it's, it's something extraordinary that happens to you it completely changed my life sport did completely change my life um, because i thought uh like a lot of amputees did probably at that time was okay so i've lost my leg there there goes all the sport that i used to love doing uh, out the window especially for me uh the biggest loss was not being able to play rugby um, because i thought that i couldn't do it I wouldn't be fast enough. Someone had ripped my leg off uh, halfway through. None of those things happened. And I was able to play able-bodied rugby uh, again, as all Kutians will attest to. 
they still have uh, my rugby leg behind the, the bar suited and booted uh, with the, the club colours on it and a rugby boot. And new members of the club have to neck a leg of ale from it. Uh, apparently, <laughs> it's about two and a half pints worth. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Robert, and thank you for putting up with my rather silly questions. But uh, I, I no really, problem. really enjoyed that. And um, yeah, it's just been great talking to you. Sure thing. No problem, Catherine.